I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. On the show today is Young No. A prolific editor, publisher, and curator, Young began his career studying architecture at Rice University, going on to curate exhibitions on architecture and design for the School of Architecture. It was during this time that Young began consulting on titles for a range of publishers, as well as putting out his own book, Bent Ply, A History of Plywood Furniture. In 2005, Young was named senior editor and creative director of Rizzoli, where he oversaw definitive monographs for many of the world's most influential architects, designers, and photographers, including a series of books with Francois Allard, of which he is particularly proud. In 2012, Young began his own imprint, August Editions, a niche publishing house focusing on contemporary visual culture. Their most recent title is The Women of Woodcock, a book made in collaboration with Paul Thomas Anderson, exploring the set and fashion of Phantom Thread as seen through the photographs of Laura Hind. Young also publishes the magazine August Journal, each issue of which offers a deep dive into a single city, immersing the reader in its art, architecture, and design. I photographed Young at his home in Carroll Gardens, where he was working on the upcoming issue of August Journal. You can see the portrait on Instagram at William Jess Laird, as well as at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture. Here I am with Young No. Young, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank yeah. you for having us. Absolutely. You're about to put out this Mexico City issue. So excited about it. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of been a long time in the works in the sense that of all the cities that I love to travel to, I think Mexico City is the one that I've been to the longest. I started going to Mexico City in the early 90s because I was going to school in Texas, in Houston. And so Mexico City was there and it has amazing architecture, which is why I studied. So Where were you in school? I was at Rice in Houston. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. How was Rice? You studied, you trained as an architect, right? Yeah, I was. And it was really, it was really interesting. It was a very small school and super intense. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, there's um, people who say, oh, I don't have the math skills to be an architect. You don't need to have the math skills. I mean, maybe when you, if you go to school in Europe, you do. Mm -hmm. But in America, it's more of a formal education than a cultural education. So we did as much architecture history and analysis as we do structures and mm-hmm. very little structures and so forth so and when you go out there i mean you that could become part of your practice but none in, in any case you always have a structural engineer mm-hmm. you have mechanical engineers you have all that stuff the job an architect in some way is more like a conductor than let's say an artist mm-hmm. you know you pull together all these kind of different skill sets from different people and you put it together and i loved education because i loved the intellectual rigor of it but I didn't love working as an architect. So did you did you work as a practicing architect? I did architect? for a little bit. Yeah, I went out and worked for a couple of architects, and it was fun. I actually worked for Michael Graves for a oh. bit when his office was just kind of exploding, and it was fine. I mean, it was great to you know work on international projects and on high you know profile projects and so forth. But you still started out, you know, you would start out doing bathrooms and toilets and things like that. Yeah. So I didn't feel like the the work itself kind of is um equal to the education that I got. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I, I don't love the work, but I love the education. How can I take it and do something else with it? You wanted to think about architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to yeah. I wanted to kind of make it more accessible. So actually, I started out teaching, and also I was hired by the by Rice when I finished to also do exhibitions and publications. Oh, cool! So I did, you know, I did. There was a design gallery at Rice that I ran, and we did really interesting shows there. I organized uh, lecture series and conferences, 
and then we started a publication program. That's how it got started. That was your publishing. first. That was yeah, your first publication. Exactly. Yeah. And what, that was just you saw the, the path forward in that. Well, you know, it was just another way of thinking about architecture and another way of building architecture. Putting together a book is not that different than putting together a building. Again, in the sense that you oversee it, but you don't ever get to necessary. You don't necessarily do all the pieces. Mm -hmm. You definitely don't print it. Like yeah. you know, an architect doesn't ever build. There's mm -hmm. a there's a builder. There's a contractor, with an editor or a publisher. You kind of oversee, but someone's doing the writing. You might be doing some of the writing, but someone would do the editing. Someone do the photography. So you know, but your job is to organize that content and make it into a compelling story mm -hmm. and I think that that's very similar and I think from my architecture background that was the best kind of one-to-one -one kind of experience I could have after you finished at Rice where mm -hmm. did you where did you go did you stay in Texas I, so after after Houston I, I left in 98 and then moved to San Francisco and I, I was working out there as a um, consulting editor so I worked with different publishers with Rizzoli with Monticelli Fiden and then with a small publisher out there called William Stout, who's a, who also owns a, the most amazing bookstore in the country. Anywhere, really. In San Francisco? Yeah. What's the yeah. bookstore? It's all architecture and art. Yeah, it's called William Stout. William Stout yeah. Bookstore. Yeah. That's cool. It was, um, I just saw him, and um, actually the American Academy of Arts and Letters is making him a fellow because oh, cool. of this, because of his contribution to culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is kind of amazing to think that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago, but if there's any good outcome of what the transformation of publishing, people are recognizing that the cultural contribution of something like a bookstore like that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't sort of like these art books, architecture books, aren't they doing better than they ever have? Someone um, told me this and I, I it was, yeah, it didn't you know, strike I think, me. I think in a certain way you, you can, you can say that definitely. I think the quality of a lot of them are a lot better. There's mm -hmm. certainly a lot more, which is really a weird thing that there's way more culture books, art, art architecture, design, fashion. There's so many more than there were mm -hmm. 20 years ago. But that's the rub there is that sales of total number of books have not gone up. That's gone down. So uh -huh. let's just say that, you know, in 1980, let's just say we sold a total of a million copies of all these kind of art books. Mm -hmm. Now you're selling a million, but with, you know, an additional 10,000 titles. So right. the sale of each book is smaller. Maybe the total sale is better. I was reading about some of your the, the first books you did, mm -hmm. and I came across this one that was uh, Bent Ply. Yes. A History of Plywood yes. Furniture, yes, which absolutely. sounds amazing. How did that project start? Oh, my God. So um, I was really, when I was in architecture school, I was really interested in materials, and I discovered the work of Charles and Reims. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of blown away because... At the time, there was this, um, when I was in, in school, was kind of the height of postmodernism. So the idea of kind of a certain kind of um, language in architecture, which becomes, that stands in for meaning mm -hmm. rather than materiality. Yeah. But that was starting to shift. And so people were starting to look at, again, the work of like Alvar Alto, you know, what, you know, it was the term warm modernism was coming back in, you know, or organic design. So for me, plywood really, for me, it was such a modern material because it's, it's this combination of nature and technology. Mm -hmm. Literally, plywood itself is literally half nature, half technology. It's half 
wood. And people don't think of it, but the other half is glue. You have to have that glue in between for it to work and for it to keep its form. You mean for all the little slats of wood that, exactly. that go into there's, the Exactly. There's layers of glue in between. Yeah. And a lot of it, there's a lot more glue than you think. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> so that's why you don't burn plywood in the fireplace. It's yeah. super toxic. Yeah. So I started um, living in Houston in the 90s. You can like, you can buy like, you go out and buy mid-century modern furniture for nothing. Mm-hmm. You really can. Like all the all the Eames furniture I have here is, is like from from back then for like 50 bucks kind of thing. So I was really obsessed with different technologies and plywood and different kind of um, furniture from plywood. So I started accumulating this collection of chairs. And you know, when you live by yourself and you have 30 chairs and no table, that's a real issue. <laughs> so I, I just finally, I just got rid of it. I was like, it's just ridiculous. I, you know, I need to actually have my space. But in order to do that, I, I did the research on this book and wrote it so that I can feel like now I have the knowledge rather than just the, the, the artifacts. And that was really fun. I really, I still have a deep fondness for plywood. I'm not sure you've seen the book. It has a plywood cover. Um, no, well, I, I saw, I saw photographs. Yeah. I couldn't find a, I yeah. couldn't find a copy, yeah. but I'd love to see a I'll copy. I'll show it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things I read about it is that you, I mean, the structure of the book is it's a two part structure, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. So, the first part is historical because mm-hmm. you know actually the idea the, the technique of plywood was invented by the uh, Egyptians mm-hmm. they have found tombs when when coffins that where um, thin pieces of wood would be nailed together cross rain and the idea that the ideas of cross raining is that you know because wood moves according to the grain mm-hmm. So that if you just have a plank of wood, it usually would start bowing one way or another. But if you actually put another piece of it on top, right, and and fix it, you know, with with nail or with glue, it won't move because it's tied to the other piece that's moving the other way. So it counteract that. So the idea of stability, the idea like a sheet of plywood will always stay flat unless it starts to delaminate, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it goes all the way back to 4,000 years, I guess, to ancient Egyptian. But I started looking at ply- how plywood was considered to be a um, modern material. So with starting in the late 19th century with mass industrialization, but also through Alto, and then it came to America with Eames, and the idea of, of bending plywood in two directions, so mm-hmm. molded wood rather than just ply, which is kind of one direction. It's pretty interesting. And then the second part of, of the book is just a compendium of, you know, the best plywood designs out there. And again, that was back before the internet where you can just like type in and you see all these images. But I organize it in a certain way so that, you know, because there, there, there are different ways, there are certain limitations that you can do with, pl- with designing plywood. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's one sheet or two sheets or three sheets of, you know, and so forth. So you did that book in 2003? Right? Yes. Yeah. So what were you, what were you doing at the time? When did you? That's, this was out in California. Yeah, I was living in San Francisco, and you know it was great because I could go over to the Berkeley uh, Library, mm-hmm. and it wasn't the main library on campus. This is the uh, in the fifties. It was called the Forestry and Timber Department. I'm not sure what it is now. So they have their own library, and you know one of the books that I, one of the magazines, one of the journals I found was called the Timmerman and they have all this they would document all the kind of innovations in plywood because they were making canoes and then planes mm-hmm. out of plywood 
for the for the war because plywood yeah. plane. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Uh, <laughs> God. Uh, the Eames office actually made parts for the Voti for 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 the one of the airplanes that was in World War Two. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I have I have a piece of it somewhere in this apartment. <laughs> it seems like a very uh, <laughs> seems like the last material you'd want to your airplane to be made out of. Well, actually, it that's you would think that, but plywood is super light. Mm-hmm. It's not steel, so you know it's the the material, the raw resource is readily available. It's does it requires a certain technology to make, but it, not that much. And once you paint it, once you kind of seal it, it doesn't burn. I mean, mm-hmm. or at least it, it it wouldn't. I mean, obviously, if if you're playing cotton fire, it's gonna be on fire. But mm-hmm. it actually was 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 very very. The the British also had planes made from plywood. Wow. Yeah. So when did you start working with Rizzoli? When I was living in, in San Francisco, I was um, working on, on different kind of projects for different publishers, and Rizzoli was one of the people. I actually authored a couple of books for Rizzoli, mm-hmm. and then they asked me to also take on the um, managing a couple of other titles that's out in California. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think I started working with them in 2001. And then in 2006, they asked me to come um, to New York and be a full-time editor. And by then, I was ready to leave San Francisco. Had so. you ever been in New York? Yeah. I, I, lived never, in New York, I never lived here for longer than, let's say, a, a long summer. I grew up in Washington, D.C. So I used to come up to New York when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I went to an art high school, and we would like drive up. Um, you know, take like a long trip and drive. One of the kids would actually get, borrow the mom's car. We drive off and go to Pearl Paint to buy cheap paint there. And oh, cool. And stuff and hang out and, you know. So you were making yeah. art as a, as, as a, at a young age. Yeah, I was, I went to, I went to, um, it's not like a super big magnet school, but there was a program in Montgomery County in Maryland that, that uh, had a program and that's, I went there, yeah. So Did you I, want to be a painter? I was, you... Yeah, I was going to actually go to art school. I was going to go, uh, I almost, I came very close to going to SVA, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I, I, how I ended up in Texas, I still can't explain. <laughs> was it just, I mean, was it, was architecture kind of like a, not a compromise, but was it, was it a mix between trying That's, something practical right, and getting right. on? I, in a weird way. I mean, I, there was no pressure from my family to not do art at mm-hmm. all. I mean, they, whatever I wanted to do, I would be, they would be fine with. But with architecture, there is... And I, th- I think this is unfair for me to say in retrospect, mm-hmm. but at the time I was like, oh, there's more intellectual rigor to architecture than there is to art. Right. I mean, there certainly was with, you know, the people I was hanging out with, we were all kind of, we weren't bullshitting art. We were just kind of like, we were painting and making art out of emotion rather yeah. than some kind of intellectual construct. But what are you supposed to do in high school? I mean, that's... It's true. Everyone has no, that first true. experience. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's absolutely true. But then, you know, when I went to visit mm-hmm. the architecture school and I, you know, you, you watch like the crit and these people knew how to talk. They knew how to defend their work mm-hmm. in a real way and not just stand there and stammer yeah. like we would in, in high school. So I was like, yeah. I can, I can, I can bullshit. That was, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. Well, it's compelling. It's good because you have to, you know, you have to defend yourself at that level. It's just not like, okay, here's my piece. Yeah. You, know, you don't like <laughs> it. Okay. Which, you know, we were doing. So I, I, I did enjoy that aspect of it very much. I would enjoy the idea that you have to defend, intellectually defend your ideas. 
Well, that's... And we, we, of course, you know, now I real, you know, once you go off to college, you realize that that's what the university is. You do that mm -hmm. across the board, whatever the department you're in, right? So you learn how to do basically, you, right, right? Right. But to do it in a way where it's, there's a creativeness involved in that kind of um, thinking mm -hmm. that it's not simply like, okay, I'm, I'm proven this formula. So that's, that's what that is. It's not that rigid. Um, there's room for interpretation, which I think is interesting. What kind of uh, what kind of architecture were you looking at? Like what what buildings were you mm. were you imagining? Yeah. So the I'm trying to think I what would, your early references were. Yeah. So the big hero, I think, I would say that it was really it was really interesting. It was a moment where there was a lot of many different strands in the air. So you were you know we were definitely looking at people like um, Aldo Rossi, which I don't know people even know who he is anymore. I mean, he was so, and he still is so important in a certain way for architects, you know, and he's considered to be a postmodernist, but I think sometimes, you know, his work comes out as much from the Chirico and surrealism as it came out of like 1960 Marxist mm -hmm. kind of thinking. Um, and then, you know, and then you were looking at Zaha Hadid, who was just starting to build, yeah. you know, she literally was just, she had one building mm -hmm. to her name. And she was already a rock star. And then you have people like John Pawson, who I invited to come and give a talk. And he, he represented a different way of thinking, right? Something more rigorous, more strict, back to basics kind of thing, monastic kind of architecture. So there was all that floating in the air. And you kind of like, you, as a student, you kind of just bang around. and you. But, you know, I, I think the one thing that really enthralled me about the discipline of architecture, but also made me very frustrated is that there's this archi speak where you learn <laughs> this, this, this language and this technology, this, yeah. this terminology and this vocabulary. And, you know, and if you don't know, if you're not reading uh, Deleuze and you're not reading Derrida and you're not, you're not part of it. And at first it's like, yes, you're like a monk and you're like, you know, you're in this club. But at, after a certain point, you you realize that you can't actually talk to you can't smart, communicate. You can't talk to people outside of the field who are otherwise extremely well learned and talented. And what you're doing, you're just simply sort of pretending to speak in a different language and mm -hmm. giving them flack for not being able to understand what you're saying. And that still exists. And I think that really has also infiltrated the art world a lot. Oh, and, you know, I just feel, and so I always feel like, well, there's real thinking here. There's real interest here. And if, if you don't know that language, you still can, you should be able to appreciate it. So that's why publishing for me is really important because it's a way to transmit these ideas through another channel, through mm -hmm. another set of frames so that people can understand what is so fascinating about architecture. Because mm -hmm. I think... Architects were making themselves very um, irrelevant to culture and to society. Isolating kind of themselves. Isolating themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the that's the great thing about architecture is that you shouldn't you shouldn't have to read anything to understand a space. You know, like you should be able to walk into something and immediately feel what that space brings to you. Right. You know, I, it's kind exactly. of visceral. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's I mean that's that's a tricky thing. I mean, it's the same. I mean, shouldn't should we give the same? Um, Shouldn't we say the same thing about art? Shouldn't we look at a painting and say, oh, that Rothko, I know what that means, when actually you kind of do have to know a little bit about 
not just Rothko, but the period he was doing this work in and the politics at the time and so forth. And so for me, context is what's important, mm -hmm. you know, giving context to why Rothko was painting these dark paintings in this, it's during the Cold War, you know, I mean, you, you can either be extremely optimistic about it and hard edge about it, or you can go to a space that's amorphous and undefinable and maybe not so happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, there's way more reading to Rothko than just that, but just by saying that alone, I think some people say, okay, I get it. You it know? puts you in a space. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. A, and a space that you can understand without having read Deleuze. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you said you were looking at, at people like Hadid and, and Paulson, and I think you worked on monographs for both of them, correct? Um, yes. What did I, you know, actually I have to say those two, I did do a, a, a number of books with, with Zaha, but John, I never work with, even though I've known him for a long time. Mm -hmm. There's a number of reasons why that's been the case, partly because he publishes only with one publisher. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, unless you're working with them, he, yeah. it's, it's, you know, he has a, he has a real loyalty to that particular publisher. I guess what I'm thinking about is, is if these were sort of your people mm -hmm. in, in college uh -huh. oh, and then right. you come to New York right. and you're working at Rizzoli and you're yeah. doing these, these, yeah. I mean, it's a huge publisher. It must've yeah. been a big job to get it at the time, right? It and was no, and it was great. It was, you were absolutely right. I, I, I see your point. Were yes, you starstruck? It, I mean, were you like, yeah, absolutely. what am I doing here? Absolutely. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that you feel like you, you're like, not so much like you made it, but yes, you made it, but more like now you get to do what you have intended to set up to do. Yeah. Right? And you know, it's not, there, there are big stars. I mean, but in this very limited field, you know, how many people <laughs> outside our circle, when you say Zaha Hadid or John Paulson, they like, Oh yeah. So <laughs> it's, true. it's true. And you always have to keep that in mind. Uh -huh. But I have to say, I enjoy working with all of them, but, it's it's a real hard lesson to learn that you you uh, I would recommend that you never really try to seek your idols and work with them because you will probably end up being slightly disappointed. Did you was it hard? I mean, was it hard doing that? At the end of the day, there are people mm -hmm. and there are stress out people who also have um, you know an ego and a sense of their place and. There's a reason why they are where they are is because they don't compromise, mm. you know. But it, to get anything done, you do have to make certain compromises. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to go back to someone that you just think like their work is incredible and said, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. And they, they get really mad at you and you're, you feel really bad about it, but there's nothing you can do about it. So. Mm -hmm. I, it, it, it's just a pitfall of the, of, of the work, I would say. Yeah. What were some of your favorite projects you did while you were, while you were there? Oh, that's, gosh, that's a tough question to answer. Not to put you on the spot. No, not at all. I'm just, you know, usually when you, you, you're always thinking about projects that leave scars <laughs> rather than, than well, other stuff. You can talk about that, too. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you first came to Rizzoli, I mean, mm -hmm. what was the, do you remember the first book you worked on or the first, like, one yeah. you really had ownership yeah. over? I, yeah. So, in fact, this project, I started before I even moved to New York. I started working on it when I was still in San Francisco. It was a big book with Richard Meyer. Mm -hmm. 
it was a double whammy because when you work on a book with Jeremiah, it's not just Richard, but you work with Massimo Vignelli, mm. who designed all his books. Mm -hmm. And I was so nervous, of course. And I remember like um, going to a meet, like a meeting with Massimo in his in his house in this, you know, that we we actually published in the New York issue. And I was just like, oh my, are we gonna get this done on time? So the deadline's next week. <laughs> And Massa was just like, kid, relax, It'll be fine. relax. Yeah. You know, I was like, this is the, I was like, this uptight Italian guy is telling me to relax. I yeah. really need to like take a chill pill for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know, my favorite projects at Rizzoli were, I have to say, were with photographers. And mm. did something that I really discovered when I started working was that I just really enjoy working with photographers more than with architects, designers, artists. Because I love images, I love photography, but also there's something about the way they think, the way they work, that's mm -hmm. so interesting to me. I think it's, um, it's, well, I think photography is, is, is the art form of the 20th century, not the 21st century, but nonetheless, it's, it's oh, fairly- Oh, don't say that. <laughs> remember we talk, remember we can, who you're talking to here. You know? I can tell you what is the art form of the 21st century, if, if what, you guys want to hear that. What but, is the art form of the 21st century? Uh, let's come back to that. Okay, fine. Because I really, I mean, I have to say, I, I, I have an idea what that is, but I prefer the art form of the 20th century, which is- um, Photography. Photography and cinema, yeah. Okay, and so my favorite people to work with is François Hollard, mm -hmm. who I adore, and his work is just for me unbelievable and underrated. You know, I mean, meaning that you think not all photographers are artists. Mm. I mean, that's you know, if you're a painter, then you're an artist. You can be a bad artist, but you're an artist. But if you're a good photographer, you may not be considered to be an artist, which I find very strange. So I guess it's because his work is in interior magazines. Well, it's there too, but you know, it's 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 not. But I, I yeah, don't mean exclusively. That, I just right. mean I, I think people sure. see that and they right. see it as a signifier. You know, you're doing that kind of work. But I agree. Yeah, I I, I, right. I don't see it like that at all. Right. I mean, I think yeah. it's I think it's amazing what he does and. Uh, and we were talking about like Deleuze and thinking about space, like it's there in Hallard if you right. want to look for it. Exactly. You know? Right. So Francois Hallard, I think is, is a great, uh, for me, looking back, I will all say that, that book I did with Francois, those three books, probably the best thing I've done and will ever done kind of thing. Uh, Oberti Julie is another one I love working with, you know, what were the, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. What, what were the three books? Just... So the first one we did together was, um, a book on the um, the gardens at Versailles that was designed for Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. So that was really quite beautiful. You yeah. know? And for me, it was a shift because when I was younger, I didn't care about nature or gardens. And I hated going to these former gardens or whatever. But now that's all I want to do. So yeah. I mean, but seeing those images and then going there, you just start, you're like, oh, this is actually as complex as a painting mm -hmm. or a building. And yet it's also alive and it so changes. And so there's a, a ethereal, ephemeral nature to the work that is like the very best performance art mm -hmm. in a certain way. It's like a whole yeah. new type, it's like a whole type other of architecture. Thing. And it's, you know? it's exactly. And, and it's one that people don't really understand because it's not often discussed. Like, and it's so if, hard to grasp. You know, you yeah, can never really, exactly. you can never really like have a garden. You can never really have it when it's done like it's always it's changing it's never, done, it's never grown way. in yeah. or it's or right. it's dying right. or you know it's, it's wild yeah. how yeah. how hard that but if be. you ask anyone any of our friends like who's your favorite 
garden designer or garden artist may be like, oh, uh, I, right? <laughs> I mean, sure, they're not they're not up on the pedestal like we we put artists and painters. Yeah, and it's very so different. Like, yeah, changing right. a bit, I think. Yeah, but. I think so too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, more there, now. There's more of an appreciation for nature. Mm-hmm. We're going back to that. Yeah. Um, and then, what was the book you did after? Oh, let me think. Well, the the his own monograph is mm-hmm. the one that is for me. It's just. It's kind of, it's like almost like a career retrospective, and that's that's where we we first published those images of the Casamela Parte, mm. yeah, and he you know he taught me how to not just um, see but to seek out these places mm-hmm. you know that are not often like you know on the map literally or you know like you do have to look at history books you have to kind of find that one photograph in some old book you're like what is that you research it yeah you see it for you look out for it you went you go there and then to photograph it the mm-hmm. way he does it's just for me it's this a very deep satisfying experience mm-hmm. and i want to become a photographer for that reason you know i really want to kind of go and just end up just capturing that moment so it's not so much an Instagram moment as we were saying earlier, but it's more just just somehow it's it kind of completes the the kind of journey mm-hmm. do of you discovering t- something. Do you take pictures? Do you do, I you do that? I do. I mean, I I don't. I mean, I I like to take pictures, and I I just bought myself a, a somewhat decent camera mm-hmm. to to do it. Just partly because for the ma- for the magazine for August Journal. Sometimes I get to go somewhere where I'm never going to get to go back yeah. and I'm not going to be able to send anyone back. And you want to have And something. I'd better be able to be prepared to just to yeah. take some, some images. Um, so, like, for instance, the, um, in the first issue of the Milan, I did shoot one of the stories in there, which I printed on uncoded paper to make sure that if it looks bad, I can blame it on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty, it was great. Yeah. Cool. It was, and it, it really did, it really helped you figure out, like, how to look at that story in a different way. Photog- I mean, I, I think um, I, I'm working with different photographers over the years, and then that's why I started um, August Journal, is I really wanted to be a platform for photographers mm-hmm. and for you know, also for illustrators and so forth, but mainly for photographers. And so every issue, I usually try to work with one photographer to do a majority of the stories, mm-hmm. just to give it a very particular look and yeah. feel which I think is, is really important. Well, it and, feels more like a book. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Right. Over the years, working with these photographers who often work for Vogue or Architecture Digest or War of Interiors, even for War of Interiors, they're like, oh, you know, we got six pages for that story that we spent three days shooting, mm-hmm. and there were so many more Im- good images. And you're right, you go through the contact sheets with them, and the editor did not pick the best images, and then they show them, like, in a little collage of four images on a page. Yeah. And you're like, what? what? Yeah, the collages are... Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, so I really, you know, so when I, when sometimes on, on these issues, like, yeah, I'm doing 26 pages on that story. Mm-hmm. People are just like, they're so happy. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm glad, because that's the whole point. Yeah. I think I think it's important if you're an editor. I, I, I never understood how people decide how many pages they, they want to give a story before it's shot. Right. And then they're like, oh, we have six, and then you pick your, you know, fill your six pages. I always think you do a story and then you build your editorial design around what right. you have, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, maybe... that's, that's, that would be ideal. And somehow <laughs> maybe that's why I'm not making any money yet, but you know, 
with all the big magazines, it's uh, as you know, this it's all based on the number of ads they have yeah, on that issue. So if they don't have enough ads, they have to cut twenty pages. They have to come out from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So politics comes into play always, but then it really comes in because you know someone's favorite photographer will be cab and other things we cut. Mm-hmm. So. But I never get to see full stories. Like, yeah. you know, it's always just a snippet. And you're like, where are the rest of the pictures? Yeah. And you really want people to get that. You can go online. Sometimes they do that. But that's not satisfying either. Yeah, it's different. You really want it to be built as a full story, you know? Mm-hmm. I want to hold you to this. Mm. What is the... What is the plot? What is the the medium of the twenty first century? Mm. All right. Well, <laughs> it's, you, it's a you pet theory. Around it I before. know it's a pet theory. Let's talk about it. So, someone told me once. I, I can't remember. It was a lecturer or someone who said, you know, every decade. I mean, every century. Every in the last, let's say, five hundred years since the modern age, mm-hmm. there has been a dominant art form that re- really is representing that age. So let's you know, let's say. For the 19th century, it was the long-form novel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Victor Hugo, Dickens, and so forth. The 18th century was the symphony. The 17th century was like the opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15th century was the, the painting, like the movable painting, mm-hmm. not fresco. So, you know, it was, the, it was invented in that particular time. It kind of embodies all the kind of uh, cultural and political and social shifts during that period yeah so of course for the 20th century i mean what's more influential and more groundbreaking than photography and then cinema right yeah yeah so i was i was thinking like what is this next you know what are we moving into and i do think that there's a there's a rise of a new kind of artist out there that we're maybe we're starting to call them artists and Maybe the people I'm talking about are not even will be considered to be artists just yet, but the first the prototype of whatever this new artist is. So you you have DJs basically, people who are working not necessarily with creating new content, but taking existing content and transforming it, remixing things, right? Because we have enough. Yes, it's yeah. it's it's it is that, but it's also like it's also like they don't tr- treat let's say a recorded song and street sound and conversation as different things for them it's all kind of raw content for them to play with yeah and but then they transform it into something else Mm -hmm. and i think that that's there's something and that that's that that's now not just in music but it's in other fields as well i mean we have artists work visual artists working Mm -hmm. in this particular way Mm -hmm. especially in photography you know with appropriation uh, right but taking that beyond appropriation right you know you're 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 transforming it so you you yeah you can you can you can have you know marlboro cowboys but then you can actually creating through digital technology completely new forms out of Something that may have been unrecognizable in its mm-hmm. final form. You have it in fashion, for sure. You know, I mean, the, most of the so-called fashion designers now are stylists who really kind of do that. They do appropriation, they do transformation. Mm-hmm. They reference other work and so forth rather than starting from scratch. Yeah. So so I don't think that we have, we've defined that that that, that particular new artist already exists. I mean, it's only... You know, we're only 18 years into the new century, but I think, you know, I think there's seeds there. And I it's think starting we, to grow. in 20 years, we can come back and we'll be like, oh, yeah, that person was super innovative in that particular new way of working in this in this format that we didn't recognize at the time. Mm-hmm. 
at the same time that these new art forms are or new forms are are being created on a daily basis through just admixture of different cultures we're also highly valuing things that are pure you know organic seasonal local right mm-hmm. and that's the other thing that i think it's been so interesting about our culture right now is that for me the food movement has been way ahead of all the other art forms mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. and whether it's something mean, we all buy into it we all consume it but this kind of organic non-gmo local seasonal thing i'm going to say something completely maybe controversial maybe everyone already knows it but that also is why trump is the president because of the organic food because movement. of this idea <laughs> of being of isolationist i mean it's it's, mm. it's a form of isolationism you know, yeah. this idea of, of purity this idea of let's return to something that we can actually can control that yeah. we know what it is and it's not something that's new and scary mm-hmm. so it's just the dark side of the of whole foods that's so. interesting i mean it is true because it, because you say like yeah the, the core idea of something like whole foods is is purity like right. you want to know the yeah. source of something yeah. And purity doesn't exist if it if there's things that are contaminated, right? You know, right? And right. yeah, you're you're, I mean, and, you're you absolutely know, immigration right. is yes. contamination. Yeah, it's a kind of know, contamination. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not, but the idea the idea is, is the right. idea for yeah. some people yeah. is that it is a kind of contamination. Yeah. It's, it's a threat, you right. know. And exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So we, in in some ways, I kind of feel like we're as, you know, our our group is as guilty of the rise of this, or, you know, we bought into this as much as anybody else. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, liberals value individualism, too. And I think that's oh, yeah. also probably sure. yeah. contributes to the, right. to the movement. Yeah. It's a type of isolationism, right. you know, that yeah. you have to be your own individual person, right. that we don't right. have these, we don't, we don't have collective movements, you no. know. The idea of the collective society is really fraying. Really, yeah. really fraying. Yeah. But on the other side, yeah. it's alive and well. You know, yeah. this, this collective, that's, you know, that's the movement that got Trump elected. It's, it's right. a collective movement. Yeah. So within that context, it would, be, it would be interesting to discuss whether this idea that I have of like the new form of art yeah. and artists, does that idea. make sense? It makes you a know? lot of sense. And, yeah. and what, well, can it actually thrive? Is that the future or is that simply, will there be a whole reaction and that old timey painters will come back to be the dominant art mm-hmm. firm for the next 50 years? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, there's always that reaction, yeah. I'm sure. So when you so you did these you did these books with with Francois Allard. When did you decide it was time to leave Rizzoli? Um, what contributed to that? It was about four years, three or four years ago, and I um, I really loved my time there, but I also felt that I did everything I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and it was getting to the point where every new season it was not like a repeat, but you're like, okay, there's. I, in a weird way, I kind of ran out of people I wanted to work with. Right. That would go through Rizzoli in yeah. a certain way. And also that um, there's a certain kind of book that Rizzoli would publish, and I wanted to explore something slightly different. And I also sensed that, you know, for some years now, books were becoming more niche, more focused. And those were the ones I was being drawn to myself personally. Mm-hmm. And it's really tough because um, at a big publishing house like Rizzoli, your books needs to 
be broad enough to be appealing to a larger audience. Mm-hmm. And it's always very tricky, like, what is that audience, right? And to be honest, I think that the most successful books at Wizzily were certain kind of niche books, whether it's like, you know, a, a interior designer or a um, fashion designer or a book on a certain theme. You, you, it's the people who want that particular information. Yeah. But I think that it could be even more focused than that. And I was more interested in, in projects that were just more focused. And that I think it's a reaction against the internet as well. It's right. The, the, the fact that, you know, you can go on the internet and you can find a lot of information, but it's not filtered, it's not edited, it's not uh, rated in some way. So there's no, there. everything is equal on that particular platform. There's no hierarchy in terms mm-hmm. of uh, significance or, or, you know, what is important, what isn't important. Right? So a book shouldn't be encyclopedic, but it should be directed. It yes, should be... and it should also be more personal. I yeah. think that it's very important that it has a strong point of view yeah. whether it's a person point of view or whether it's a kind of intellectual framework mm-hmm. that the work is presented in which again is completely somewhat neutral or neutralized when it's on the internet mm-hmm. right? i think yeah i think that's right i think that's true of uh it's different the way it plays out but it's true of magazines too oh absolutely you know i absolutely. think the best yeah. magazines are the ones where they're not encyclopedic but they you can understand where they're coming from, the, the specific point of view, and yeah. they represent a way of looking at the world. Right. No, absolutely. And you trust that. Right. Yeah. So you you limit yourself in terms of the audience for when you do this kind of publishing, yeah. whether it's a book or a magazine. But you're speaking to a very focused audience, and they a very open audience. They're, they want to have this. They want that point of view. Mm-hmm. They want to have um, that kind of information. They they don't want something generic. Yeah, they want something that is uh, framed. And whether you agree with the material or not is that's something else. But at least it has a point of view that you can actually react to and against. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I, I I wanted to start my own thing. I was doing very um, I was publishing smaller books, mm-hmm. but usually there are projects of friends of mine that they've been working on as a passion project rather mm-hmm. than a commercial project. And so it's harder for them to find a publisher. And I always believe that the best kind of books are the ones where you allow the content to speak and you don't try to like, oh, should we tweak this so that we get this audience and mm-hmm. you, you can sell another 500 copies. But I'm okay with that because I, I, I like to provide a platform mm-hmm. for this material to exist. And this is August Editions. This is August Editions, yeah. What was the first book you did? The first book I did with August Editions is a book with my friend uh, Jean-Philippe Delhomme, who's the a illustrator. French illustrator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was living in New York. He and his wife and their young kid moved to New York for a year, maybe f- five, six years ago. And, you know, and he's a great observer of, of, of street culture and mm-hmm. so forth. And he was just noticing at the time this particular breed that, you know, of hipsters in <laughs> lower Manhattan and lower East Side. And the Williamsburg. past decade has been the rise and the fall I of the know, hipster. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so he had a show um, with, um, I think it was with Half Gallery or with Partners in Spay at the time. Uh, portraits of people and you know and he he the gallery assistant was writing down the, the name of the pieces like because they're usually portraits of people like Glenn O'Brien or 
Olivia Zahm and so forth, friends of his. And one of them, the you know, the girl was like, oh, and who's this? And he's like, oh, that's just a hipster. And, and she's like, does he have a name? And he's like, no, he's unknown. <laughs> so it became the unknown hipster was the name of the, and then he started a blog called that. And he would like, it was the character, the character. So I helped him with it. His English is excellent, but we, I would just copy out of his stuff and just uh -huh. kind of like, you know, so we thought it was a great project, but, and we totally felt it was really charming, but too niche. Right. Which I agree with. So I was like, well, I'll publish it. You know, mm -hmm. I'll just, we just print a thousand copies. You know, yeah. we don't have to print 5,000 or 10,000. And it totally was the right hit at the right moment. I mean, it's just, um, of course, that culture was just right to be mm -hmm. made fun of mm -hmm. in a really sweet and daring way, which is how he does it. I have so, a copy of that book. Oh, I, you do? I got it when it came out. <laughs> I thought it was okay. great. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I actually didn't even realize it was your book until yeah. I was looking at, at the, at the the titles listed August uh -huh, um, right I loved that yeah. book when yeah it came yeah out. no it was really fun Christmas and time I got it, it was sold yeah <laughs> it literally sold out a thousand copies sold out like you know um, Jennifer Baker at the bookmark was like such a big supporter and they sold half of the copies there mm -hmm. there I mean it was you know we didn't really have distribution it's just but it, it, we we printed a second edition mm -hmm. because it was like there was such demand for it yeah so I was like you know this was super fun and you can do it and mm -hmm. can you, you can make it work so that's how it started it was and they're all I mean recently I've been publishing some bigger books mm -hmm. and you know that's just part for the course that you know you made a name for yourself and people come to you and they're amazing projects you can't say no to it but yeah. they're still very personal I just this fall I published a book um, with Paul Thomas Anderson yeah I want um, to talk about this yeah, yeah. Um, basically around the film Phantom Thread and again it was just such a weird project it's Such called a, it's called the women of woodcock right the women of woodcock so yeah. you know that um have you seen the film of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love the film yeah what do you think about it it was definitely pta film right yeah i mean for sure there's no arguing what that is and um it was hard for me because i read the script oh yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting because it it took me into a whole different other mindset just because what was in the script versus what got filmed versus got edited at him out and what's in the film is totally different oh really yeah i mean he, he the the, the storyline changed a little bit some things become more subtle some things become more obvious he cut out a lot of scenes i mean there were more male characters in the script interesting and in the film there's really it's just him there was yeah. one guy who's supposed to be his business partner that's in like two short scenes mm -hmm. i mean i only knew that because i was watching for it yeah but they're all women. They're mm -hmm. all women characters, except for except for Mr. Randall's Whitcock. Well, it, that kind of contributes to the weirdness of the film. Yeah, you know, is absolutely. That you, it kind of it's so unequal and right. Yeah, right. And it's the seamstresses and these right. models right. and and yeah. his sister who. Yeah. Uh, that that actress, what was her name? Leslie Mann. Leslie Mann. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I love incredible. that movie. She's incredible. They all were, all the performances were insane. It was so intense, though. I mean, I need to see it again. I saw it at an early screening, mm -hmm. and Paul was there, actually. So it was just, it made the whole thing very kind of like, you had to pay attention, yeah. you had to watch it, and so forth. Um, for for the book launch, we, we did this talk at LACMA with the costume designer, Mark Bridges, who mm -hmm. actually won an Academy Award for this film. Yeah. And, rightly so. Yeah, I mean, rightly on. so. I mean... And he he said, you know, I mean, people have said this, but he 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 sort of uses an example. He said Paul doesn't have any uh, hobbies. 
making film is his <laughs> it's like what work, he does. it's his life, yeah. it's his hobby, it's his reading. Like, you know, after, so the reason he said that is because it, Paul made a um, faux documentary, 1950s, like newsreel of the fashion show as if it was from like BBC, like, you know, they had a voiceover, British voiceover. It was in black and white. Mm -hmm. Like he spent like a week making this for fun. Yeah. You know, then no one, they show it at this, um, at this talk, but yeah, it's not like for the DVD or anything. It was just like, Oh, this is, I just have some time. I'm going to make this little (laughs) faux documentary. It's well, amazing. That's, well, that's like the the Boogie Nights. That's the story, right? Yeah, Dirk, exactly. The Dirk Diggler right. thing he made in high right. school, exactly. Which yeah. is crazy to see. Yeah, it's very it's very funny. My, I love his movies. I yep. I really love Phantom Thread. Yeah. It's my I think it was my favorite movie last year. Mm, yeah, it's one. Of, I think it's one of those films that will hold up in future in the future. And the level of detail and everything was just insane. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel Day Lewis actually when an apprentice with the costume designer at the New York City Ballet for a year and a half, he started out learning how to sew, making buttonholes. He made a thousand buttonholes mm-hmm. and then he went on to start cutting. And then his graduation, he actually, he made a Balenciaga dress from scratch. <laughs> so, 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 every, so in the film, yeah. So in the film when you see him cutting or using a pair of scissors, He's, he's doing it. He's doing it. Yeah. You know, he knows how to do it. It's not, he's not faking any of it. Yeah. He's such an amazing actor. I do you think he's going to, do you think he's going to honor his word? I uh, think we'll see another day Lewis movie. You know, I, I think he will probably come back, but I think he, it will be a long time. Yeah. I think Cause so you too. know, didn't he took some time off to became a, a shoe cobbler, right? He learned how to make shoes, <laughs> handmade shoes for two I years. Didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. And now he's really into making furniture. Interesting. Yeah. So he's a, he's a cool guy. He's a super intense guy. Yeah. So, so what the about... two of them were very, very well suited to each other. Yeah. So the, the other, uh, other books you've done at, at August, mm-hmm. uh, you recently did a, a, a new book with, with, um, Paris journal. Oh, sure. Yeah. With John, John Philippe. No, no, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Me for yeah, a yeah, second. yeah. 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 That was also another project where, um, John Philippe was um, asked by the Sunday magazine of the German newspaper Die Zeit to do the last page. And they usually, they, they give this to prominent artists to do every year. Mm-hmm. They would ask someone to literally do it for the whole year from January 1st to December 31st. Every and day? Then, just on Sunday. On so Sundays. it's 52, okay, 52 yeah. entries. And the past has always been photographers. Mm-hmm. So it's been more easy in a certain way. I mean, yeah. I'm not fair to say that. but No, but know, I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, pretty big name photographers. So they asked him to do it. And he said, well, I'd like to do, the theme would be everyday life living in Paris. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it was uh, 2015. So, I mean, things happened in Paris. But that year, it started in, fe- in January with the um, terrorist attack on Charlie Hebdo. Yeah. And there were, you know, and those were some of his friends who, who were killed in that office. And then it ended, the year also ended with another attack on, on the Pataclan music hall. So yeah. it kind of became this invisible thread throughout the series of weeks. You know, there are happy things and sad things, but it kind of really anchor you in this moment in time mm-hmm. that you're, you know, this is, we, we like to think that Paris, you know, I mean, the, the book is called Paris Journal. And you think, oh, it's going to be just like Senpei where 
man's walking his dog in the park. Romantic. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. there's that. I mean, you know, Jean-Philippe has a dog he was walking who would like to go swim in the sand and stuff like that. But then there would be, he would talk about the trash in the sand, rather, right? you know. So mm -hmm. it was, it was for me, it was that right balance between like the magic of Paris and the reality of the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. So I really, I really like that book a lot. So we, we kind of started talking about this at the beginning, mm -hmm. but we got off it quickly. So I mean, we should say, you know, you, you published this, this magazine, mm -hmm. uh, August journal, mm -hmm. and the new one is in Mexico city where yeah. we were together. We didn't, yes. we didn't get we, we to didn't get meet up, but we were there in spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's, what's going on with this? When's, when's the new issue coming out? Um, end of May, mm -hmm. I think May or maybe early June. It's a little late for a number of reasons but mexico city is just as you know magical i mean it's a city of 20 million people and there's so much just so many layers there mm -hmm. and you know when i started the magazine the way i describe it to friends was like instead of doing 20 stories on 20 different cities in an issue i would do 20 stories on the same city and i, I call it a deep dive into mm -hmm. that place you know into the culture but I, I'm starting to think that in a way, the approach is almost, you can also say that it's um, novelistic, mm -hmm. you know, that it's a long form study of a place mm -hmm. as a character. And so these are, they're more than love letters. They're kind of like character studies, you know, uh, if Mexico City can be a character, mm -hmm. that's what, you know, you hopefully will get a sense of who that is after looking through the issue. I read that when you started August Journal, mm -hmm. you saw it as being sort of a mix between Nest and National Geographic. Yes, I wrote that in the, uh, that's, that was my elevator pitch. I love that, yeah. though. And it's, it's true. What it really was it is. about Nest? I mean, what, what made that well, so you know, I mean, you know Nest. Nest yeah. is like the culty interior design magazine that Joe Holtzman started in the late 90s, early 2000s. I think it lasted like five or seven years. Mm -hmm. There's maybe 40 issues or something. I don't and know why all the good ones go away. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, because Joe, he, he never really took on advertising and so forth. And he, he put a lot of his own money into it. And you just, but not that it looked like that. It just looked like it was made with love and passion. Mm -hmm. And that, as much as anything else, was sort of inspiration. But I think the real thing that we all were gravitating to us is just, it's a very personal point of view. Mm -hmm. There's no one else could have done that but him, you know, and it, the magazine had a very distinctive look. But I think even without that graphic, you can always tell it's a nest story because of what it covers and how it's covered. And then there's, you know, for me, National Geographic, we all grew up with it. It's, it's, it's the exploration of the bigger world. It's the one, you know, going out to some place that you've never been before. Yeah. Right. It's crazy how long i mean we talked you, you said nest it was around for seven years yeah. nat geo has been around for 75 or more like 100 it, it's crazy i yeah. i don't even yeah. know yeah. But a, a long a long time i yeah. think more than 75 yeah, i think so um because yeah. it was it was around before yeah. there were even photographs of right these places, it's true right uh, but yeah. they didn't publish photographs right. in nat yeah. geo which is crazy to think about but my my family has has a has a bunch of old ones and mm -hmm. i just i love reading about yeah 
places that are relatively familiar to us right. now. Sure. But reading about them in 1951, right? Like, you know, it, it was like a discovery yeah. of something. It's like Some Delhi. S- it's like Delhi, India, and right. everyone's like, "Oh, like, right. yeah, Delhi," or even like rural Ireland or something sure. like that. Sure, sure, you sure. know, and the horses there. You're mm-hmm. like, "What horses look like <laughs> that over there? How can that be?" I mean, that's yeah. amazing. Really eye-opening. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of right, and so it's that sense of discovery that I wanted to kind of somehow achieve with this Mm -hmm. and you know obviously there's very few things left to be discovered yeah but there are actually you just have to shift your focus into something that no one else is looking at and Mm -hmm. mexico city i mean like i said people people prefer to go to montreal than mexico city which is crazy which is crazy i know sarah and i were saying because we were down there for the for the art fairs and I couldn't believe that people go to Miami and don't go to right. Mexico City. It exactly. seems like a, I mean, no. you're, there's so much to do there. So much to do. It's so affordable, mm-hmm. and it's a completely different, very authentic culture. That can, you know, it, it is. It's it only is Mexico City. It can't be anything. It's just like when you when New York is only New York, right? Mm-hmm. Or Paris is Paris, and that for me, it's a great world capital, a great cultural kind of like it's a big layer cake mm-hmm. of culture. There's yeah. so many different layers. I mean, literally, you know, I mean, they're literally layers of like pre-Columbian Aztec. When they built the, the subway for the 68 Olympics, that's when they're like, oh, we just found like three more underground like temples that yeah. we didn't know was there. They had to build around, you know. That's Everyone always says these stories about... You know, when buildings are being built and they like find all this stuff under the city, I yeah. never, it, it's so crazy to me. Yeah. You know? But that's, for me, that's literally the manifestation of a great city is that it's layer upon layer of layer of history. Mm-hmm. Young, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to thank Young No, as well as the team and contributors to August Journal and August Editions. This show is produced by Sarah Levine, and our music is by Jack and Eliza. Remember, you can see my portraits of all our guests at williamjesslercom slash imageculture. And if you enjoy the show, please help us grow by leaving a rating, writing a review, or sharing the show with a friend. Thanks so much. See you next week.